Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Chris in Ottawa starts us off this hour. Hey, Chris, welcome into the program. Hi, Noah. How's it going this evening? Excellent. How are you doing, sir? I am, well, I got almost a little bit of cough, so hopefully I'm going to do that on air. Um, Sounds good. So my first first thing to you, um, I am trying to find a replacement for Microsoft project that would be an mm. open source one so I can start people moving over to uh, moving over to that before I try and move the desktops over to Linux. Sure. I found Project Libra at mm-hmm. one point, yep. but it, at least on the Windows side, it's not as, it doesn't seem to run as well as I would expect. Maybe it works better on Linux, but I don't know. Have you have you checked out, uh, I, I'm probably going to screw up the pronunciation of this, but the Taiga or Taiga? I don't know that one. No, I'll, I'll throw a link for the in the in the show notes. So it's a project management platform. It's specifically designed for developers. Uh, are you doing Are you doing software development, or are you doing some other form of project management? Uh, no, this is. Um, it's more looking for the Gantt charting. Okay, and just. Just basic project uh, project layout. Okay, I, I still recommend you check out Tega uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and I'm probably not. Um, they it's it's interesting. So the the way that they do it is you can it's an open source project, so obviously you can just take the code and run, uh, which we like. But the other choice is they actually have a premium and an enterprise cloud version. So if you say to yourself, I don't want the overhead of actually having to run it, I just want to try it and see how it works out, you can get up to three people on on a given project for free. And then you can do a a team account. I think it's like $5 per month per team. Uh, on a on a on a on a monthly or a yearly plan, and actually try it with them. And like I say, of course, it's there's no vendor lock in because the entire platform is open source. So if you ever want to take it and run, um, just download the source code and run it yourself. Okay, that sounds great. Did I, did I understand that you had two questions, or was it that was that it? Uh, yeah. Well, the, I've got another problem that all of a sudden cropped up. Um, and my the, the business I work for, we have a main data center. Uh, disaster recovery, but then we have four sub offices, and all of a sudden, um, three of our offices uh, can't get to certain websites. They're, the DNS checks out, trace routes get part of the way, um, they get the same DNS as everybody else. They seem to go there, but every time they try and get to these certain sites, they just the websites come back as timing out, and I really seem to figure out why it would be for just these individual sites. Um, Two of them, at least, are on the same. Like we have multiple different um, ISPs mm-hmm. that we deal with. Two, of the, two out of three are on the same one. I have to check out if the uh, if the third one uh, is tied to that as well. If there might be a, an internal routing problem that way, but otherwise, I can't seem to nail down why they would not be able to get to these when everybody else can. 
to a certain degree as once you verify that your traffic is leaving your edge device it's leaving your router and hitting the isp's network once that occurs and you're able to confirm that uh, it's in the hands of the ISP, right? And so you're going to have to work with the ISP yeah. and get them, unless you're doing some sort of, you're not doing any sort of VPN between offices or anything like that, are you? The VP, yeah, there is a VPN tunnel between the offices, but the um, all regular inter- internet traffic still goes out through their own their own uh, device. Okay, but you verified that it when you're when you're sending a trace route, you're verifying that that those packets are following the the yeah. the, the, the quickest path out to the internet and not trying to exit the internet through a VPN or something like that, right? Yes. Yeah, it, it, they're not coming back to our main. Like, it's a hub and spoke. They're not coming back oh, okay. to the main office and then trying to get back out. They're they are going out, but they just seem to fizzle out uh, after about 10 or 15 jumps and sure. then never come back. Yeah, your answer your answer, 100% is just to work with the ISP and you'll just have to tell them, hey, this is what's happening and what can you do for me? And I have had one of the things that I've had some luck with, uh, Chris, that you might want to do, I've called an ISP before and said, I can't get traffic to this particular IP address. And they go, mm-hmm. So what I've done is I've gone to a server company where I'm having trouble hitting their traffic and said, hey, would you please reach out to the, the ISP and tell them, hey, we have a customer that's having a difficult time reaching the server that's hosted on our on our infrastructure, and it looks like the traffic is being dropped at X Y Z. And they take the, the they take the calls from these larger hosting companies a little more seriously than Noah Chalai in Grand Forks, North Dakota, or Chris in Ottawa. Right? You might have better luck if you can find something that you're trying to get to and say, "Hey, I can't get to your site. What's going on?" And see if they can reach out to the ISP and work kind of backwards, kind of trick them into caring. Okay. That's good. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. Jack, Chicago. You're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, I'm back. <laughs> I had some questions from your uh, self-hosting episode that you did last week. Yeah, you bet. Um, I really like self-hosting a lot of my stuff, but I have problems connecting to it. So um, I have servers you know, in my own house, and I'd like to connect to it using WireGuard. Yes. Like, through my phone and through my laptop and things like that. Weirdly, I can get this all to work locally, and I can't get it to work remotely. So, like, doing port forwarding through my router and stuff like that. Is it possible to, for example, have WireGuard on my iOS device and then, uh, like, either through IP or, like, a DNS, like have it just like when I go to Bitwarden on my phone, I fill it, fill in the like self-hosted domain, have it connect to my server in my house. Yes, that is possible. Although I don't have an iOS device, so I've not tried it with iOS. I have done exactly that on Android. And so essentially what you do in your WireGuard configuration, you will set up the configuration mm-hmm. to just like the last caller was saying, anything by default, all the traffic goes through the default gateway and goes straight out to the internet. However, if we see traffic that is destined to my LAN at my house, let's say it's 192.168.0.0, that's the network, okay? If I see traffic mm-hmm. destined for 192.168.0.x, send that traffic over the WireGuard interface. And that is a very simple, easy thing to do. We actually have a tutorial uh, Jack out on YouTube and I will put a link oh. to that tutorial on the on in the in the show notes You can get podcast.asknoahshow.com. It walks you step by step through exactly what you need to do Even if you don't want to understand what most of us probably want to dig in and understand it and kind of play and tweak to our needs oh. But it, the guide is written so that yeah. you can just monkey see monkey do copy paste and you'll have a working wire guard configuration set up in 10 minutes or less This is the setting up wire guard, right? 
Yes, it, yeah, set it up from scratch. That and, YouTube video. Yep, we did we did a and, setup and used it to set up my laptop. You did. Okay, great. Yeah, the problem was really connecting the two. So getting like once the IP gets over to my server or DNS, like I have a problem basically trying to get it to like host like open project and host like or even host anything and get it to really like work on the other side. Like getting it to SSH for some reason isn't a problem, but like I'm not sure um if it's like a, you know, a specific port on that IP, like, so, but it is, I guess since I can SSH locally, it's getting it to work remotely, like getting my phone to do it over the internet. I'm not sure if there's something I'm missing there. Yeah. What it could, what it could be, Jack, here's how I would troubleshoot this. What it could be is it could be a configuration Mm -hmm. end on your phone, right? Because your phone has to know how to send traffic out. So what I might do is a troubleshooting step, perhaps set it up on a laptop remotely. And does that work? And it's, it'll be a lot easier for you to try. And if it doesn't work, if it does work, then you know it's a problem with the configuration of your phone. If it doesn't work, then the troubleshooting on a laptop is going to be much easier because you can start to look and say, hey, if I run a trace route to this particular IP address, is the traffic getting there? Is it not getting there? The other thing that occurs to me is there may be some firewall rules or firewall things that are stopping you. If you're able to SSH into a given server, but you're not able to access another server, or another service that's running on that same machine, Understand that the TCP traffic or UDP traffic, whichever you're using, is reaching is your IP traffic, I guess, rather, is reaching the the destination. So we have a connection there. If it's not reaching a service, what is stopping that service from connecting? And is is there a firewall or something in place that is preventing that from happening? Um, because if it was just a WireGuard routing issue, the more I think about it, you wouldn't be able to even SSH in. And so the fact that you're able to get an SSH connection to establish, but not other services, tells me there's something else stopping that connection from occurring. And it could and it could be because your WireGuard connection is going to come in over a separate interface as it would normal IP traffic. And there may be some firewall thing you need to change there. Okay, that's interesting. I wasn't sure if like WireGuard was only set up to really work with like certain protocols or certain ports, or if there's a restriction inside WireGuard itself. No. And um, I had a question just about self-hosting in WireGuard. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why I want to self-host with local servers instead of cloud-based servers like DigitalOcean or something is to reduce like my attack surface area. Oh yeah. So, um, does hosting with WireGuard in like you know my private you know like home and stuff like that does that reduce like uh, attacks from like scanners and like all like, that will people can't just uh, you know find ports and other things like that like that actually like a kind of a safer in a sense. Um, so y- it absolutely limits your 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 uh, your threat vector significantly, right? Because all of every service is shut off to the world except for WireGuard. So in that respect, absolutely using WireGuard and self-hosting behind your home firewall is one hundred percent going to lower the threat. Surface. However, is your home IP any more or less susceptible to scanning technology, port scanning technology, or attackers looking for something to knock on than a DigitalOcean IP address? Probably not. Um, it might be a little bit less likely in that they may take a block and go, this IP block is known to belong to DigitalOcean. People that are running DigitalOcean are known to run self-hosted servers. And so the chances of finding something in this block are high because we know at some point it's going to be assigned to a server exposed to the internet. So we might, so in that realm, there might be a slightly 
less of an attack invitation but at the same time most attackers are not that sophisticated they just they go looking through the internet and find the lowest hanging fruit and knock on it and yeah. you're you're not going to be a low hanging fruit if the only thing that's running is a wire guard uh, entrance right because they're going to have to generate those keys they're not going to yeah. be able to do that the crypto is very very solid on wire guard uh, so i would say it's it's your your it's a totally solid solution i would be very comfortable running that in my house Awesome. Yeah, that was the idea was to like remove like, you know, dependency ports like MongoDB or Postgres or something like that, like remove all the default configurations. So the only port will be WireGuard. But I figured I'd ask you if that's actually safer than like just self-hosting on DigitalOcean. But it sounds like it is. Yes. So that's awesome. Yep. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Awesome, Jack. I appreciate the call. Thanks so much. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. Chaz, New York. You're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Pretty good, Chaz. Welcome back. Thank you. So it seems like there's a lot of excitement around uh, Clear Linux. I know they talk about it on mm-hmm. the Jupiter shows. I know Jason's uh, column talked about it, uh, actually two days in a row now. Um, and it seems like a bit of a no-brainer to me, just on the basis of it's in distro created by Intel, who also created the processor and integrated graphics in my ThinkPad. And I'm kind of thinking about maybe testing it as a daily driver, but I'm always a bit apprehensive when it comes to something that doesn't end in Buntu. So sure. I'm, uh, I'm wondering what the Ask Noah show's take on it. Upsides, downsides, you know, is it a relatively steep learning curve? Is there anything that's, common software that's not going to be immediately available what's your take on it my take is this it's a very very capable linux distribution it is something that is getting more and more attention we heard about it at red hat summit we've seen about it in the tech press as you've pointed out i have prepped a story on it tonight to talk about Uh, so it's a very serious contender it absolutely deserves attention i hats off to intel for pushing the envelope forward as it were and developing an operating system specifically designed for uh, specific cloud computing environments and all of those things i think all of that's great would i run it as a desktop distribution a hundred percent no and the reason is a intel isn't developing it as a desktop distribution and so your support infrastructure is going to be limited b it hasn't been on the market long enough to have a proven track record So initial appearances seem very good, and it's definitely something to keep an eye out, but I wouldn't even run it on a server at this point because, I mean, my choice, you know, would be between something like Red Hat, which has a 10-year, which has a 25-year track history, Canonical, which has, uh, uh, you know, just under 25-year track history, and then I've got ClearOS, which is Intel's latest dab into the Linux infrastructure. Is that, am I going to bank my company on that? No. Am I going to bank anything I rely on? No. Would I play with it on a VPS just to kind of check it out? Absolutely. And should you install it on a, on a laptop and play with it and see what you can do with it for a daily driver? Yeah, why not? Um, but the whole design infrastructure, the way that they have, the way the very operating system is designed, they have um, the, uh, it's it's focused on Intel in the cloud and it's designed for better power management and performance optimizations for that Intel system. And they have the, their money is being spent on technology that plugs into dockers and Kubernetes and all of these things that are great for a cloud-based operating system, not so great for, or don't really mean diddly squat when it comes to running a desktop operating system. Okay. Yeah. I had uh, definitely installed a live USB, uh, or made a USB of it today and, taken a look but uh, hadn't pulled the trigger on installing yet figured i should 
get some more input before I gave it any more look on my uh, ThinkPad. Yeah, probably wouldn't. Pro- like I said, I would play with it. Wouldn't run it as a, an actual desktop distribution, uh, at least not yet. And we'll, if we have time, we'll, we'll dig into that story a little bit later in the hour. 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. Lou, Connecticut, you're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hey, Noah, how are you doing? Hey, pretty good. I turned my microphone off there. How, how are we doing? Pretty good. So, um, so I had a question, and then that's um, kind of related to how to sync contacts and calendars on Android. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you what my solution is, but really what I'm looking for is a simpler solution. To, so I have a lot of people that I'm trying to help out, you know, get off the Google ecosystem, um, kind of get off iOS at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of managed to, I mean, I know for myself, I just use Lineage OS with no Google apps, and I use uh, NextCloud to sync my calendars and my contacts, and it's mm-hmm. fine. But for the average person, I feel like setting, up, setting something like, uh, like that up is you kind of put yourself in that bind where if something goes wrong, I mean, it's, it's, it's me that's, that's going to be free text yep. now. And um, I just, I, I know you have some experience with uh, UB ports. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've never used it before, but I'm assuming they have to have some other way to sync their contacts and calendar. And is that solution also avail- available for something like um, open source Android? Yeah, I would not suggest any anything in the realm of, of, of UB ports for a non-techie user, right? Like the entire ecosystem and all of the tools that are designed for it are designed for people that, a very, very specific target audience of people who care more about their privacy and security than they do about convenience. And we've had developers on the show more than once tell us the, that exact thing. I would argue the lowest, the, the lowest uh, path for resistance for getting off of Google for the average layperson, if I can use that term would be Nextcloud. And you, if you don't okay. want, if you don't want, if if you have a user and you say to, and you say to yourself, well, that user isn't going to want to uh, manage their own, instance of Nextcloud, you can either find a community-supported version of Nextcloud that somebody would give you an account on, or a company like AltaSpeed Technologies that you know would would sell you a, a specific instance and manage it for you. So you just pay a monthly fee and then, then it's there. And the, the reality, Lou, is that we have reached a point now where users have to make a decision if they want to pay for their 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 services with their privacy, or if they want to pay for services with their wallet, and they'll have to make that choice. And um, I think as we continue to move through the year and as we continue to become aware of some of these privacy violations, I think there is more and more of an effort and more and more of a focus to move people off of, quote unquote, free services that are paid for with privacy and move on to platforms that are paid for with dollars, because at least the dollars we can control and replace the privacy we cannot. I see. I see. Okay. And um, just last question, and I'm not sure if you know this, but um, have you heard of SyncThing? I have. As I, someone's mentioned to me before that, that you can sync contacts pretty easily on sync thing, and that might be something that you might want to set up with people because then they can just sync their own contacts on the computer. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm just like kind of struggling to find like an easy, uh, easy scenario. Because right now it's like you sign in with your Google account on an Android phone and, and you're done. Yep. And so something that's like kind of similar to that. I, I know Nextcloud, you have to, you have to go and you have to download a, a DabDroid and kind of get it set up through there, which is a little more of a learning curve for people like that, I guess. Um, but is there anything else besides Nextcloud that, that you know of? There is there. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways to Nextcloud is the is the most prolific and the most direct replacement, right? There are a tons of little hack around solutions that you can use. And that's kind of where you get into with with SyncThing. Now, the problem I have with SyncThing, quite frankly, and I know I'm going to get some slack for saying this, but it's the truth. I've just never had it work right. It it works fine for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then it stops working. It's a great concept in theory. I've just never had good luck with it long term. If you want. Though that kind of out of the box solution, though, and you say, well, 
to yourself, I just want something that's extremely simple. I'm not necessarily care if it's open source. It just need it to be hosted by me and be easy and simple to set up. One of the things that we do at UltaSpeed is we have a 3CX server that hosts our phone system. And as a function of the 3CX server, it has a built-in contact functionality. And so you could, and the free, the, the free license for 3CX, even if you're not actually using it to make calls, uh, you could install the 3CX client and store contacts in there. And when you create a contact in the phone, one of the dropdowns it gives you is which account do you want to store it on? Do you want to do it on Google or do you want to do it on, in my case, my extension 701? So it's a 701 on sip.altaspeed.com and gives you the it gives you the opportunity to store it in that account. Now, the nice thing from a user perspective is it gets back to that you just, in, in 3CX's case, you actually just scan a QR code. But otherwise, you would just add an account like you would a Google account and just under the account things, you pick 3CX and, and add it that way. So that's a way to do it. Along okay. those same lines, you could sign up for a hosted mail solution like Fastmail or ProtonMail or um, Register for Less has one that is based on on, on uh, Roundcube and some open source backend stuff. All of those things are going to allow you to kind of do the same thing. Um, but they're not... NextCloud is literally aims to be a Google drop-in replacement, whereas all of these solutions are kind of yeah. like, they're designed for something else, but you could use them for contact syncing. Okay. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Noah. Yeah, thanks for the call. 855-450. Noah, that's 855-450-6624. XMN in the chat room says WebDAV and CalDAV. So that's something that you might want to consider as well. The nice thing about WebDAV and CalDAV is they are universal standards that are put out specifically designed to facilitate uh, contact sharing, calendar sharing, those kinds of things. And, of course, uh, uh, WebDAV also is designed to be able to access a, a, a web share or a, a file share remotely over the Internet. I had some time to spend at Red Hat Summit, and it was an absolutely fantastic time. I spent three days there. We spent a, all, the, almost the entire time interviewing Red Hat employees, uh, sitting down to dinner with them and getting to know their team and understanding what their goals and priorities are and getting a real understanding of what the decisions were and why those decisions were made for RHEL 8. Now, I understand that the we get feedback all the time from people that say the reason that we listen, I listen to Ask Noah is because I want to get the latest, most up-to-date information on enterprise IT. I fully admit that my strong suit is not necessarily in the development space. My strong suit isn't necessarily in the uh, what toys can I play with at home. My strong suit is in enterprise because that's what I've spent the vast majority of my life working in, specifically Red Hat. So I find that technology that Red Hat is doing, the decisions that they're making, I find those all to be very interesting and very intriguing to me. And so a good friend of mine, Scott McCarty, who uh, I've, I've known for years and bumped into him at various different conferences, he is a true Red Hatter. He is a guy that eats, lives, and breathes Linux, open source, and Red Hat. And I, I sat down with him and I said, hey, you know, here's the thing. I've got, the sh I've got a show coming up on Tuesday. It's the release of RHEL 8. RHEL 8 is out. We're all very excited. We're all testing it. We're all playing with it. For the enterprise customers that are out there, I, I need to get from the horse's mouth. I want to know what are the new features coming up in RHEL 8. If you don't care about new features and functionality, should you upgrade? And if so, why? And here are some here are a list of some of the, the, the concerns that I have, because Red Hat has made some interesting decisions and decisions that off the bat I may have not agreed with. They chose not to ship Docker with RHEL 8. Instead, they're shipping some alternative technologies. Now, it's all OCI compliant, but that decision seems like it alienates itself 
from the mainstream. And I'm curious as to what led to those decisions. And so Scott was kind enough, said, yeah, I would absolutely love to come on Ask Noah. I'd absolutely love to explain that to your audience and, and tell them what they're doing. Now, this year, and I I don't always go to Red Hat Summit, but on the on the releases of RHEL, I try and make it out there. It was a weird year. Satya Nadella was on stage, the CEO of Microsoft, and had a discussion with Jim Whitehurst, the CEO of IBM. I'm sorry, the CEO of Red Hat, soon to be the CEO of IBM. Oops, did I say that out loud? That was a real indication of a redirection of Microsoft. And it's interesting because Microsoft spent this week making headlines. They plan to ship a full Linux kernel in Windows 10, beginning with Windows Inside Editions this summer. They're going to build an in-house custom Linux kernel to underpin the newest version of the Windows subsystem for Linux. Now, the kernel itself is going to be released on version 4.19, the latest long-term stable release of Linux. Then the Linux kernel will be rebased off the designation of long-term support releases in the future to ensure that WSL kernel is always the latest of the Linux kernel. For, so for developers, this will mean a dramatic improvement in the Microsoft Linux subsystem inside of Windows. Windows also is promising to update the kernel through Windows Update, and that means that it'll be fully open source with the ability for developers to create their own WSL kernel and contribute changes. So this is a major milestone for Microsoft and underscores the message that they have been trying to send to the Linux community that Microsoft now cares about Linux and Microsoft is invested in the Linux future. My question to you is, does this actually bring us closer to mainstream Linux on the desktop? Because on one hand, Windows is in fact a desktop operating system and now they are running our kernel. However, this is not about graphical desktop applications. This doesn't mean that Photoshop is coming to Linux anytime soon. We are strictly talking about server programs, server code being executed on Linux. And I said it since day one of this program, day one of the Ask Noah show. I have said this and stood by it. Other people have contradicted me. Many of them won't go on the air and say it publicly, but they'll say it privately. They believe that this is a, a shift from Microsoft, and I don't buy it for a second. I don't believe that Microsoft is a friend of Linux. I believe that Microsoft has its own best interests in, at, in mind, and I believe that right now, Linux coincides with those best interests. I believe that Linux, Red Hat specifically, I think, is required for Microsoft to win in a 2019 and 2020 and 2021 technology future. I think if they want to move into cloud, I think if they want to restructure Azure, I think they have to have a company like Red Hat, a company who understands open source, understands Linux, understands scalability, and is building the bleeding edge technology that is going to be required by Microsoft to succeed in this space. The world has shifted to free and open source software. You can like it, you can dislike it, but there is no denying the fact that free and open source software is some of them is becoming the new standard in the technology space. And if Satya Nadella and Microsoft want to be a part of that future, they don't have a choice but to get up on stage with Jim Whitehurst and say that they need Linux, specifically Red Hat, to compete with that and to win. Now we won the server war. Ninety-nine point something percent of all servers in industry are running Linux, but has the desktop really made any progress because of it? I would argue no. We don't even have Microsoft Word yet on the desktop, something that would be trivial for Microsoft to port. Win winning in one space is not the same as winning in general. 
And what is frustrating to me is I feel like I am being not necessarily lied to, but I feel like I'm being misled that there is this kumbaya symbiotic relationship now with Microsoft and Linux. And I believe that will break the moment Linux no longer has something financial to offer Microsoft. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I just want everybody to be open and honest about it. The Linux kernel ships on more mobile devices worldwide than Apple ever has a fat chance at. And I don't think there's a single listener of this show that would write in and tell me that they believe that the mobile version of Android that we have today is the mobile version of Linux that we have envisioned for years. So I am thankful and congratulations to Microsoft for making an awesome decision that is going to make it much more inviting for developers to use Windows. Congratulations on putting some money into a fantastic marketing video for a new terminal. But you'll excuse me if I continue to hold on to my reservations about Microsoft becoming the new steward of Linux. Now, I don't want to waste any more time. I want to get to Scott McCarty because I want you to hear this audio right from the horse's mouth. This is REL 8 with Scott McCarty. Scott McCarty, he is the principal product manager at Red Hat and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Scott, welcome into the program. Hey, how are you doing? Excellent. So I guess let's start with this. What are the selling points of RHEL 8? If there's somebody that has maybe not heard of RHEL before, they live under a rock, and this is the first time they're hearing about it, what are the things that you're excited about? Well, for me, I'm a, I'm a principal product manager for the container subsystem team. So, I mean, for me, containers are what are, is the most exciting thing, but I'm biased. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, let's uh, let's let's table the discussion for containers. I guess we'll revisit that because obviously that's a deep rabbit hole that we definitely want to go down. What are some of the real world advantages to Rel8? And what I mean by real world advantages, if you're a customer and you're on Rel7, for example, and you don't have you have no interest in new products, new features, new services, you just want the system to work and to continue to work. What are still some of the advantages in upgrading to eight? Well, so 8 um, is interesting because it moves to a predictable life cycle, where in RHEL 7, um, you know, we had dot releases that would come out. Sometimes it was five, six months. Sometimes it was eight, nine, 10, 11, I think was one of our longer ones, months, um, you know, in between the releases. And so it's harder to plan. And then also... It's a, it's a challenge when some people, the, the challenge with open source and all software in general is typically there are a group of people that want stuff really fast, and then there's another group of people that don't want anything to change and they don't want it to break anything. I will admit I'm typically the curmudgeon that doesn't want things to break, although every now and then there's something that I really want badly, and then I'm annoyed when I can't get that. And I think we all have, you know, the line between that slices through the heart of every man, woman, and child. You know, we're like, sometimes we want the really fast stuff, sometimes we don't. Um, and so the beauty of, of, of Rel8 is a predictable clock. So every six months there'll be a dot release. And then that dot release cadence helps us uh, with setting the rest of the clock for the, for the entire, you know, distribution. So the, the, you combine that predictable clock with something called application streams and then, and then variable life cycles for each of the application streams. So an application stream would package something like Python. And so Python 3.7, like I want it when it comes out. I want 3.8 when that, 
you know, if and when that comes out. And I want it as quickly as I can. And we're actually going to have uh, the ability to do that up to four times a year. So a dot release will be every six months, but then we'll actually have a, a click in between where we can actually release a, a, an application stream. So up to four times a year, we can get something new out the door as a separate release. And, and having all the predictability of that, kind of like a Swiss watch is, is really advantageous because it can allow the, the people that want the stable stuff can just stick on the, you know, th Python 3.6 today or whatever. And then, and then, you know, if 3.7 comes out, get that exciting new thing, you know, that kind of thing. Talk a little bit about application. Well, actually, before we do that, let me ask you this. How long can a customer uh, expect support for uh, a RHEL installation at this point? So a RHEL installation, 10 years, you know, 10 plus years, I should say, because it, it, it depends some, many times at the end of a RHEL lifecycle will extend, but we'll see. We're still negotiating a little bit about how far that will go because because with with a, with, a, with a clock and the way we're going to be able to upgrade, we're still kind of figuring out what that future will look like. But you're going to keep that base solid for the customer. You're going to keep yes. it reliable and predictable. And then we're going to use these application streams and modularity uh, to stack on top of that. Let's dig into that. What are application streams? What is modularity? Um, we saw that come out in Fedora. It's obviously a huge feature in RHEL 8. Talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So... So modularity to me is, is actually one of the, so a lot, modularity in a nutshell is what allowed me and my team to package uh, the container tools, for example, in a, in a very specific way. Um, and I think our module in particular highlights a lot of the value of app streams. I think the Python example is simpler and I kind of mentioned it. It's like, well, 3.6 is out today, I want 3.7. Cool, up to four times a year, as soon as 3.7 comes out, boom, we can add another app stream and now you have 3.6 and 3.7 and they both have their own life cycle. That's cool because now, I kind of have, you know, and, and I forget what the Python life cycle is, but it's several years, you know, it's, it's multiple years. Um, and, but something like container tools, on the other hand, we actually release two streams on day one. So we release a fast stream that's just rolling. It's a rolling, what we call a rolling stream. So we'll be able to get newer versions of, pod, you know, Podman, build a Scopio out the door really quickly and keep it pretty closely aligned with upstream. But then every now and then we'll have an off ramp. We'll have what we call a V1 stream, V2 stream. At release, we have the V1. So there's an off ramp right at the beginning. If you want to just stick on the stable one, there'll be 24 months of support for that one. At year, so at 8.2, one year in, we'll actually have a V2 stream. That V2 stream will allow, you know, an off ramp to stable. So for example, taking it to a use case that a customer would do, you know, developers are always like, I want the latest Podman because it has this root list, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, sysadmin's like, ah, I don't want to deal with this. I just want to give them the thing that works so I don't have to deal with this, right? So we want to be able to solve that problem with this fast stream. And then what will happen, though, is we love DevOps, but the bottom line is developers still throw this over the wall. They're like, wow, all right, now it's in production. You guys handle this. Like, I don't want to deal with this. And there's, there's a natural disconnect there. Even if you work and collaborate on the system, at some point it becomes this ops' responsibility for the long life cycle. And so we basically then have that off-ramp so that ops can then just run that specific version of Podman, hopefully very closely aligned with what they did, you know, and then have that thing be supported for, for two years. With Rel8, one of the things that we're seeing is a real focus on ARM infrastructure, particularly ROC64. Um, what can you tell me about that? Well, I'm not super deep on the ARM side, but I will say it was exciting to me. And within the day, the day that we did that release of, uh, of, uh, of Rel on ARM with, with, with Amazon, I had a VM up and I literally had Podman running with ARM containers because, uh, the way, the way the container registries work nowadays with the OCI spec is that basically we have a manifest in the, in the repository and it'll just pull the right image. And so the tooling was just sick. I mean, it was like one of those things where you're like, I can't believe this works this easily. Like, it's amazing. I know it's not necessarily a function of RHEL 8, but talk a little bit about Image Builder, the open source project. What is it and what can we look forward to with it? 
Yeah, so Image Builder is a way to basically set up rel images in a new way. And it's really exciting because the, the future of that is the potential to deploy all kinds of cloud you know, images and things like that. It's just, it's just a, a really cool way to build your gold build, basically. Red Hat made an interesting decision with the release of Rel 8, and that decision, which honestly kind of took me a little bit by surprise, and the more I dig into it, I'm starting to, I think, understand the reasons behind it, but they decided not to ship Rel 8 with Docker. Instead, you're shipping with Builda, with Scopio, and with Podman. What are each of those tools? What do they do? What are the implications for somebody who is running Docker, and what led to that decision? Yeah, so so it's funny. I, uh, I We've jokingly said internally, um, it's not that we decided to move to Podman. We just decided to not release Docker in Rel 8. Um, we have Docker and Podman and build in Scopio in Rel 7. And you know, so we basically have two sets of tools. You know, we have the Docker all in one thing that does everything. And then we have the, the, you know, the three tools that do specialized things. Um, the way I describe it is, is, you know, when you first start with containers, it's like starting with cooking. You need a chef's knife. Like, and I'm, I, I am not an expert chef, so I basically use the chef knife for everything. I just cut vegetables. I cut everything with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I stir soup with it. But, but uh, you know, as you get more advanced, you know, then you get a paring knife, then you get a hibachi knife, then you get all these specialized knives, right? So Docker was that chef's knife of containers, and now with RHEL 8, Podman's the chef's knife. You know, that's the all-in-one, does almost everything. Um, and then every now and then, you need a specialized knife, and that's where Scopio and Builda come in. So Builda is focused, you know, specifically on building container images, and it does it in two main ways. It can do it using the host's tools or kind of a scratch build, or it can do it, you know, using Docker files. Um, and so, like, it, it really allows you to build super granular images with existing scripting languages, whatever you need. Um, and then Scopio allows you to do all kinds of things, like verify images, uh, sign them, remotely inspect them, uh, you know, pull them down, cache them locally. And you can do really fancy, I call it, that's the thing that helps you find images. So I always talk about it as find, run, and build. And so, like, you know, find is Scopio, run is Podman, and build is build, a, you know, in a nutshell. The lightweight container runtime for Kubernetes called Cryo. Now, I think that's primarily a function of OpenShift, not necessarily RHEL 8. But for those who haven't heard of Cryo, what specifically is it and why is it important? Yeah, so so on the RHEL 8 side, right, we released Podman. That's the container engine. That's the thing that you run containers with. Um, it is daemonless. There's no daemon. It's just a tool that basically fires off containers because containers are just Linux processes. So it's, easy to it's easier to have a tool that just fires that off. In a Kubernetes environment, there's a daemon called the kubelet. The kubelet listens to the kubemaster. And so if you think about a Kubernetes cluster, the, the Kubernetes master or masters has to go out and talk to the cluster and it has to basically talk to something on the cluster. So it talks to the kubelet. But then the kubelet doesn't start the containers itself. It needs, it's actually, the way, the way Kubernetes has been architected is to have something called the CRI like protocol, uh, container runtime, uh, you know, uh, pr uh, you know uh, protocol that basically allows um, you know, interface, I'm sorry, container runtime interface that allows uh, the kubelet to talk to CRI compliant container engines. Well, Podman doesn't sit, it doesn't sit, it doesn't have anything to talk to. So basically we built something called Cryo, actually the community, we've contributed even with SUSE is a big supporter of it and Intel is a big, a big contributor. And, um, uh, and we love them for their contributions. And uh, we basically have built a, a Container engine is what I would call it that calls run C just like Podman calls run C just like Docker calls run C to go fire up containers, but it is specifically dedicated to only doing the things that Kubernetes needs. And that allows us to do some really cool stuff. So if you look at like Podman and Docker, 
that's meant to be used by a human being. And human beings sometimes want to find, run, and build containers. In a production environment, you really don't want people doing that kind of stuff. So because you have to give them more capabilities on the system, you have to give them more security, you know, you know, ability basically. And, and you want to be able to take that away in a production environment, but you want to be able to give it in a dev environment. And so tearing all the tools apart into builder, podman, cryo, all of these different tools now allows us to do different things. So for example, podman uses more cap, has more Linux capabilities assigned to it. So like, so like if you run a container with podman, it's, uh, it's going to have more, you know, more security access basically. But in, in production in cryo, we can actually restrict that down to like six capabilities or seven capabilities. And so we can start to experiment with all kinds of ways to lock the containers down in more ways. And then Cryo doesn't support anything other than Kubernetes. So it just versions with Kubernetes. If it's Kubernetes 1.14, then it's Cryo 1.14. And so that's released in OpenShift. We're seeing a huge innovation in storage, uh, not only in RHEL 8, but at, in the ecosystem at large, right? You're seeing innovations with ZFS, obviously on the BSD side. Stratus is, uh, is, a, is a big talk of RHEL 8. What is Stratus? What does it do? What, what are the benefits? So, so Stratus is not really my area of expertise, um, but I mean, it's, yeah, I would say it's a way to help make it easier to manage storage, you know, in a rel environment, basically. It's easier than, than directly interfacing with like LVM, you know, essentially. Talk a little bit about rel 8's uh, full system-wide encryption and what that does. So historically, if you looked at um, doing things like FIPS compliance, for example, you would go out and you would look at some document that told you what protocols you needed to enable and all this thing. And so if you've ever done this, it's kind of a pain in the butt, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So you would go out to your Apache web server, hack together the Apache config script and make it respond to only the right protocols. And then you have to go out to the SSH daemon and you'd have to do the same thing. And you'd have to go out to anything else that was running on the system that you know used encryption to do the same thing. That is a nightmare. And it was always, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a nightmare, but it wasn't fun. you know. And it, you never really got a warm and fuzzy feeling that you actually got it right. Mm -hmm. So what we've done with rel is we've actually kind of uh, engineered all of the core daemon set, you know, all the daemons like Apache and SSH and all and Kerberos and all these things to basically listen to a system-wide policy. And so you can now put the policy in a kind of more restricted space where it's like more secure. You can kind of put it in a legacy mode and then you can put it in a FIPS mode. Um, and so basically depending on how much security you need, you can kind of set the same policy for all the daemons on the system, which is just really convenient. Another focus of RHEL 8 is to bring down the barrier of entry to people that want to administrate the system. So whereas previously you would want a certified uh, system administrator, even maybe not certified, but somebody who is at least trained or has some firsthand knowledge on how to administrate the system, uh, these days what you're, what Red Hat seems to be positioning is the ability for people that maybe don't have that knowledge or expertise to still do some basic administration tasks. And one of the examples that was given was to be able to actually administrate a server from your phone. Uh, talk a little bit about that feature in RHEL 8. Yeah, so, I mean, we do this every time in RHEL, I'd say we did it in RHEL 6, we did it in RHEL 7, we did it, and we're doing it in RHEL 8 again. We've tried to make it easier and easier and easier to administer it because the bottom line is as Linux grows and has continued to grow and has never stopped growing, you know, uh, if you go back to the RHEL four or five days, right, I don't know, Windows was still a big chunk of the market, right? And then if you look now at the release of RHEL 8, it's a different world. Like, I would say the vast majority of the growth is in the Linux world. And in fact, even Microsoft embraces that, right? Like, now, I never thought I would have saw, you know, I never thought I would see that. Um, but now, we're starting to realize, and with that, you have scaling issues, right? You need to be able to be accessible for all kinds of different admins, you know, including Windows admins that are coming over and they're like, hey, I want to expand my career. Hey, we got a lot of growth in the Linux side. I need to help them. And so to do that, you know, we have built something called Web Console and it's a really slick interface that uses 
you know, pattern fly, just like every other Red Hat product. It looks really slick and um, it allows, you know, less less technical or, or maybe people that are not quite as, you know, comfortable on the command line to kind of get into it and start to configure things. So, I mean, it's, I, I joke, I'm old, so I remember Webmin and I loved Webmin. Like, I mean, Webmin didn't have the greatest user interface from like a modern perspective, but at the time it was pretty good. And um, it's like fancy Webmin. That's like actually really pretty and really nice. And it has a lot of cool features like, um, all kinds of things. Like the last one I saw was uh, uh, logging, console logging. So like you can actually console log and play the console back and you can see what a sysadmin did when they were on the system. That's pretty cool. Wow. So the auditing ability of that is is fantastic. And how secure is that? Because so, you know, common wisdom would say you don't run a web server unless you absolutely have to. I assume that that has obviously been taken into account when they rolled this out as a feature. How does how does it work from a security standpoint? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's you have the ability to shut it off if you're in a really highly secure system. But 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 I think I think. Um, you know, it depends. I think at least my perspectives have changed around how secure web servers are, and especially if they're configured right, they can be configured pretty securely. So I'm not super nervous about the secure the security piece of it. But uh, but I, I mean, I, you could configure it to authenticate just like anything, and you know, you can have multiple factor that kind of thing if you want. Um, but I think uh, I think the convenience out of the box is kind of what we're you know I think it it's still worth the balance, you know, in a nutshell. I think if you took me back 10 years, I didn't run any service I didn't need, but now almost everything is a web server at this point. It's encouraging and it is reassuring to hear that come from Red Hat. I guess what I would ask is, is it designed to be run open on the internet? Like if I have a box that has a public IP, can I throw it on there? Or is it really designed to be run behind a VPN? It would be more designed to run behind a firewall. At least that's my perspective on it. I wouldn't want to have that. In fact, I wouldn't run anything that has any kind of remote administration capability live on the internet. I give you a funny anecdote if you'd like to hear one but uh, one time I had the idea that I thought uh, I used to I was at a startup for four years where we I ran everything I ran 150 servers at two different data centers including the BGP and the routers and the firewalls and everything and uh, and basically I was like nobody's gonna break into the routers I was like the SSH will be fine I was like it's so convenient for me to be able to get in the route the front door routers they were out in front of the firewalls and they did BGP because you can have firewalls in front of BGP so I was like well our front door routers are just out there on the internet with SSH fired up well somehow Russian hackers got into them and were running SIP calls through our they were routing SIP traffic through our routers and one day our internet was super slow and I was looking at all uh, all of our NetFlow data, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? Where is all this data coming? And then called my upstream provider. I'm like, dude, what kind of traffic are you seeing come into our front doors? And they're like, dude, there's a bunch of SIP traffic. And I'm like, why would there be SIP traffic? We're not doing SIP stuff. And so uh, voice over IP traffic, basically. And uh, and I found it, and you know, I go, dude, what do you think's happening? He's like, oh, I've seen this before. This is Russian hackers. They basically somehow got into your front doors, hacked it. So I had to wipe both routers. This is like our main front door router. So I had to like wipe one, bring it back up, you know, wipe the other one, bring it back up. Never let administrative stuff run online, open on the internet. I would never recommend that to anyone. If somebody is comfortable running SSH uh, live on the internet, would you say that uh, cockpit is designed, or the web console is designed to be uh, just as secure, or is it? Uh, is there? Would you say that it's probably uh, one step below having SSH exposed to the internet? I, you know, that's a tough question. I'd say both of them are a bad idea, although I'm guilty of it mm -hmm. at times. I would say my experience with SSH over the last five years has been it's gotten worse and worse and worse. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like though, I can't even. You can't run SSH on port twenty-two. I mean, if you do, you're 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 crazy. Um, if you run it off port, you're still probably crazy, um, but you're less crazy. But um, I would say I wouldn't run it. 
I would say probably the same from from a, from a security perspective. I'd say the SSL that we use is probably similar to SSH from a security perspective. But and the fact that you can make things time out and do things like that, I would say you you know and you can log access attempts and things like that. I would say they're fairly on par security wise. But I still wouldn't recommend it, and I wouldn't recommend running SSH either because I think it's just crazy at this point. We're at the point where even my stuff, I run IPsec tunnels or or open SSL tunnels, and uh, you know basically won't put anything live on the internet. I have one one port that I'll get into and then I'm behind my firewall basically and then I'm in to my own personal stuff. I don't I don't do it anymore. Have you played with WireGuard or considered running WireGuard to facilitate that kind of VPN connection? I have not. <laughs> It's pretty cool. I, you know, yeah, it is. It's really neat. And the neat thing is because it's baked into the kernel, right? You, you have it's literally as simple to set up as exchanging a set of SSH keys. Really? So yeah, yeah I was, I've still been using OpenVPN, but it's just mostly because I'm a curmudgeon. I haven't investigated anything new. Let's uh, switch uh, gears a little bit, and I want to talk a little bit about universal base image. So this is something that is, uh, I think, central to RHEL 8 and the release, and I think the advantage to customers is going to be huge. What is universal base image? How does it work? So Red Hat Universal Base Image is my baby. I worked a lot, a lot of hours the last uh, four or five weeks on this and, and the last three, four months on it. Um, but basically, Red Hat Universal Base Image is the default base image in Rel8. There's three versions of it. There's a minimal, a standard, and an init or a, or a uh, multi-service uh, version of it that you can run system D in it, basically. Um, it's funny because I have to switch between kind of marketing mode and actually just say what it is. Um, but... Uh, so in a nutshell, um, you know, it's a, it's, it is the default base image in RHEL 8, and we've made it, we've released it under a different end-user license agreement that allows redistribution in a nutshell. And so if you look at what we included in our RHEL 7 base image, we actually have a, a, a corollary UBI 7 or Universal Base Image 7 for RHEL 7 as well, and the base images are identical. It's the exact same packages. There's actually no difference in what it is, but then... It, we also release a set of yum repositories side by side with the container images to allow you to run like rebuilds on those container images. Um, and then in a nutshell, the, the value it provides is it's a redistributable base image that anybody can use, whether it's community, whether it's partners, whether it's, uh, you know, businesses that want to share information between each other or, or like a classic case I try to explain is like today, if I'm a university and I, you're a university and I'm doing science stuff in a container and I want to, you know, the problem with a container is it drags operating system bits along with it, which never was historically what happened. If I shared an RPM with you before, it didn't drag anything with it. I could just share you with the RPM with you and say it was a rel RPM. I built it on rel. I'd share it with you. You're a rel user. You would run it. Um, it was easy to do. Um, but with a container image, I now drag some of those bits into the container image. And if I want to share it with you, actually it breaks our end user license agreement historically. So with UBI, it will no longer break that. And you can share it anywhere you want. You can use it. It's not supported anywhere else because it's hard to support um, Linux binaries on other people's kernels. Um, and it's hard to build a business case around doing that to where we can actually do something profitable. But at the same time, we want to let people do it. I would say it's on par with CentOS or Fedora if it's not running on, you know, you know, uh, RHEL. But if it's running on RHEL, it is RHEL in a nutshell. That's kind of what UBI is. Totally unrelated to RHEL 8. Uh, I was at Red Hat Summit and walking around and interviewing, uh, spending three days talking to people from Red Hat and interviewing people from Red Hat. I got the distinct impression that everybody that sat down with me was not giving me brochure filler. They were not giving me a tagline. Open source is a central belief. It's a core belief to everybody that works there. I'm curious, what does open source mean to you personally? Well, that's funny that you say that. Yeah, there is a lot of 
believers. And I'm definitely one of the Kool-Aid drinkers. I fully admit it. Like, like I could go work in any technology company. I could go work in Silicon Valley if I wanted. Um, I just don't, I just don't believe in it. Right. Like, like if you, if, if you watch, uh, Silicon Valley, the TV show, if you watched it, you watch that and it's, it's sickeningly true, basically, in a nutshell. And uh, you go, these people don't know what they believe in. Like, they don't have any cause, right? Like, there's no, there's nothing above and beyond just making a living that they care about or just getting rich is the cool thing. And it just isn't the case in the open source world. Like, I have no problem making a living. I have no problem selling something to somebody else of value, especially if they're going to make money on it, right? Like, I have no problem with an economy working. But at the same time, I feel intrinsically that, like, like, Open source has been, I mean, it's been an enabler for my life. Like at the end of the day, I've been able to build my own career off of it. And to be very honest, like it's super transparent. I grew up fairly poor. And so like seeing open source and being able to, I remember, so let me explain it this way. I remember when I first started out, uh, my first job, I did a little bit of Solaris and I was like, this Solaris stuff, I was like, I want to get the books. Everything was super expensive. It was like $150 for a book and there were all these crazy $1,000 libraries of manuals and you couldn't like, even the information on the docs was like proprietary and it was like considered like gold, like, like to be able to get access to the books for a Unix system was considered like, like, oh, you don't get the books, we have the books. And it was just bizarre. And it was... um. It was proprietary. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. And, and even the Unix admins were like treated like gods, you know, because they had all the information. And it was like so bizarre and different than anything I understood. And then you went into the open source world. It was just like, oh yeah, dude, just read the docs. And they're like, and you're like, what? I can read the docs? I, I was like, huh. Like, you know, it's just strange, right? I mean, but it was amazing. And I was like, this is totally, immediately I saw implications that like, this is going to enable like millions of people to do technology, like in a way that's never been done before. And here we are 20 years later now, for me anyway. And uh, it's true. It's like genuinely true. And so like, I just, I just think it changed the world more than anything I've seen. And I fell into it, but, but it's just changed the world. And there's a ton of believers in this at Red Hat, you know. Scott McCarty, he is a principal product manager at Red Hat and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the program, share with us what's new in RHEL 8. Congratulations to you and the entire team at Red Hat for an absolutely fantastic release. We'll get you back on the program soon. Yeah, thank you, man. Take care. And a huge thanks to the rest of Red Hat for literally rolling out the red carpet. I mean, they take such good care of us. Anytime we go out there, anytime we do anything with Red Hat, they always take great care of us and, uh, and make sure that we understand that they value the work that we do. And so a huge thank you to the entire team at Red Hat who has uh, arranged and taken such good care of us. I, I want to get to some feedback. Again, you can send your feedback to live at asknoahshow.com. want to make that a bigger part of the program in the, in the, uh, in the upcoming years. John writes in and says, hi, Noah. Been listening to the show since it started. So I've heard a lot about C file as a result. A few months ago, I decided to set up a C file on my Ubuntu server, which has worked great. I don't, I didn't use engine X or Apache because there are very few users. It's running on my home network and I don't need to access it outside of that. I have two questions. Are there any particular security concerns I should address? Is there any point in making the site secure via HTTPS and not HTTP? I seem to need a domain name to achieve that, which I don't have in the scenario. Well, a couple things there. If you were, if you told me you were accessing it across the internet, it would change my answer significantly because I would tell you absolutely use HTTPS because the creator of the software says don't rely purely on the crypto of C file itself. You should use HTTPS. However, behind a private network, there probably is no reason to do that. Um, and so I wouldn't recommend bothering with it. Now, if you decide you want to create a domain 
because you have control over the DNS servers in, on your network, even if it's just your, your Microtech router, you can assign yourself whatever domain you want. And you'll be able to, uh, you know, generate uh, uh, a certificate. I suppose you wouldn't be able to because you wouldn't the the Let's Encrypt wouldn't be able to verify that the the domain is actually correct. So you probably would have to purchase an actual domain. But you could do that on, uh, you know, like .tk or or .ml or .ga and .gq. Any of those uh, free domain services, you'd be able to purchase one. That you'd be able to generate a Let's Encrypt certificate. But if it were me, if I was going to do HTTPS, I would just do a private certificate and and not worry about it. Hey guys, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Ask Noah Show. If you'd like more information, make sure to check out MindRipMedia.com. That we have all of our Linux-related content with video. So we spent a lot of time at Red Hat filming portions that will not be released on the show. They're only available as video content, so make sure to check that out. You can also find it at YouTube.com slash MindRipMedia. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. We'll see you next week, everybody. Have a good one. <laughs>